so what I'm thinking about now is that I'm in an interesting place in my career, and it's an interesting time in Silicon Valley. Uh, you know, I, I've spent, I mean, I grew up in Silicon Valley, but it's something I've been reporting about since 1977, which is this Moore's Law acceleration. And, uh, you know, over the last five years, it's, it's you sort of another layer has been added on to the Moore's Law discussion um, with Kurzweil and, and people like him arguing that we're on the brink of self-aware self machines. And just very recently, the Gateses and the Musks and uh, Hawkings have all been saying that, you know, this is an existential threat to humankind. And I, I simply don't see it. And, uh, you know, if you sort of begin to uh, pick it apart, um, their argument and the, you know, basically the fundamental of our argument of Silicon Valley is, is it's all about this uh, exponential acceleration that comes out of the semiconductor industry. And I suddenly discovered it was over. Now, it may not be over forever, but it's clearly paused. And so all the things that have been driving everything that I do, um, the kinds of technologies that have emerged out of here that have changed the, the world have ridden on basically the fact that the cost of computing doesn't just fall, but it falls at an accelerating rate. And guess what? In the last two years, the price of each transistor has stopped falling. And, you know, that's, that's kind of a profound moment. And, you know, Kurzweil argues, well, you've got these interlock curves. So, you know, even after silicon tops out, there's going to be something else. Maybe he's right. But right now, that's not what's going on. And so it, it unwinds a lot of the arguments about uh, the, the future of computing and the impact of computing on society. Uh, if we are at a plateau, uh, a lot of these things that we expect and what's become the ideology of Silicon Valley uh, doesn't happen. Uh, it doesn't happen in the way we think it does. And uh, I see uh, evidence of that slowdown everywhere. Um, but the belief system of Silicon Valley doesn't really uh, doesn't take that into account. And so um, there was a wonderful moment. Uh, I, I went down to uh, cover the DARPA uh, robotics challenge in Southern California. You know, it was a it was a uh, there was a preliminary event in, in Florida uh, 18 months ago, and now they had the finals, and they had you know, 25 teams. It was really quite an event. It was it was a spectacle. And they built these, by and large, Terminator-style machines. And the idea was that they would be able to work in a Fukushima-like environment. Mm -hmm. And uh, only three of the machines, after uh, these teams had worked on them for 18 months, were able to comp even complete the tasks. And they completed the tasks in about, I think the winning team did it in about 45 minutes. They had an hour to do these eight tasks that you and I could do in about five minutes. Um, they had to drive a vehicle, they had to go through a door, they had to turn a crank, they had to throw a switch, they had to walk over a rubble pile, and then they had to climb stairs. Might have been able to do it a lot quicker than five minutes. It took the robot about 45 minutes. And most of the robots failed at basically the second task, which was opening the door. And so Rod Brooks, who's, you know, who's this pioneering roboticist, who came down to watch and sort of to comment on it afterwards, said, um, well, you know, if you're worried about the Terminator, because he He'd seen all these robots struggling to get the door open. He said, "Just, just keep your, just keep your door closed." And uh, we're really at that stage where our expectations have really outrun uh, the reality of the technology. And so, uh, 
I've been thinking a lot about uh, where Silicon Valley is. I mean, one of the things about the Valley today is it's moved. Um, about a year ago, Richard Florida did this uh, you know, fascinating uh, piece of analysis. He, he geolocated all the current uh, venture capital investments. And, you know, once upon a time, the center of Silicon Valley was in Santa Clara. And now it's moved 50 miles north. And the current center of Silicon Valley by current investment is actually at the foot of Potrero Hill in San Francisco. And you living in San Francisco, you see that, you know. Manufacturing, which is what Silicon Valley once was, has largely moved to Asia. And now this is this marketing and design center, and it's a very different beast than it was. Uh, so uh, I've been thinking about, about you know, Silicon Valley at, at sort of a plateau and maybe the end of the line. And, you know, I just spent, uh, I guess, three or four years reporting about robotics. I've actually been writing about it since 2004 even longer when uh, the first autonomous vehicle grand challenge happened. And I watched this you know, rapid acceleration in robotics. And, uh, you know, we're at this point where over the last, I guess, three or four years, there's been this uh, growing debate in uh, our society about the role of automation, largely forced by the falling cost of computing and sensors and the fact that, um, you know, there's a new round of of automation in society, and particularly in American American society. And we're not only now displacing sort of blue collar tasks, which has happened forever, but we're replacing um, you know, lawyers and doctors. Um, we're starting to nibble at the top of the pyramid. And you know, I I, I played a role in sort of cre creating this new debate. I mean, the the automation debate comes around in America at regular intervals. And the last time it happened probably uh, in earnest in, in America was during the 1960s. And it sort of it ended prematurely because of uh, the Vietnam War. Um, uh, you know, there was, there was this discussion and then the war sort of swept away any discussion. And now it's come back with a vengeance. And uh, I, be, I began writing articles about white collar automation in 2010, 2011. And um, actually, it was uh, at a dinner with you that I sort of, uh, my own thinking on this was reframed. Um, there's been a deluge of, bo of books, um, like The Race Against the Machine, The Rise of the Robots, The Second Machine Age, Lights in the Tunnel, uh, all saying that there will be no more jobs, you know, that the, that the automation is going to accelerate. And, uh, and there, you know, by 2045, machines will be able to do everything that, that humans uh, can do. And I was actually at a dinner with you a couple of years ago, and I, I was sort of, um, I was ranting about this to Danny Kahneman, the economist. And uh, uh, Kahneman, and particularly with respect to China, and make, sort of making the argument that this new wave of automation, manufacturing automation, is coming to China. And uh, Kahneman uh, said to me, you just don't get it. I said, what? And he said, you know, in, in China, the robots are going to come just in time. And what's largely left out of this discussion about robots and manufacturing automation and white-collar automation is that all over the advanced world, uh, we're seeing uh, a remarkably, uh, uh, a dramatically aging population. And so um, what's called the dependency ratio is is uh, moving in a direction where you know he's right we may the robots may show up just in time 
because uh, there may not be enough workers. And it's a very, a very different way of looking at the problem than most of the people who are looking at automation are looking at. You know, in China, they have a one, uh, a one uh, child policy. In Japan, the aging situation is even worse. Um, Europe is aging dramatically. The Europeans are now spending a billion dollars on robotics to try to build a generation of machines that can take care of human beings who are, um, who are uh, elders. Uh, and, and, you know, by 2020, we're going to cross over, and for the first time in history, there are going to be more people who are over 65 years alive in the world than there are people under five. And so, um, you know, I, I think my sense is after sort of spending two or three years working on this that it's a much more nuanced situation than the alarmists seem to believe. Um, Brindleson and McAfee and Martin Ford and Jaron Lanier have all written about the rapid pace of automation. And I guess I feel two things. One, that the pace is not that fast. Um, that deploying these technologies will take more time than people think, and two, that the the structure of the workforce may change in ways that actually means that we we need more uh, more robots than than we think we do, and that the robots will have a role to play. And the other thing is that um, you know that the development of the technologies to make these things work is uneven. Right now, we're um, we're undergoing just this rapid uh, 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 just acceleration in pattern recognition technologies. Machines, for the first time, are learning how to recognize objects. They're learning how to understand scenes. They're learning how to recognize a human voice. They're learning how to understand human language. That's all happening, no question, um, that, the, that the advances have been really dramatic and they've largely been, uh, it's largely happened due to this, this uh, technique called deep learning, uh, which is sort of a, a modern iteration of neural net, uh, artificial neural nets, which of course have been around since the 1950s and even before. Uh, but what hasn't happened is, is the other part of the AI problem, which is called cognition. Um, machine, we haven't made any breakthroughs in planning and thinking. And so it's not clear that you'll be able to turn these machines loose in the environment to you know, be waiters or uh, flip hamburgers or do all the things that humans being, beings do as quickly as we think. Uh, and all, you know, also in the United States, the manufacturing economy has already left by and large. I mean, only 9% of the workers in the United States are involved in, in manufacturing. So there's this, this, this wonderful uh, sort of um, counter, um, counter uh, sort of situation to the to the popular belief that uh, you know, there will be no jobs. I mean, the last time someone wrote about this uh, in 1995, um, there was a book called The End of Work that predicted this. And in the decade after that, um, the U.S. economy grew faster than the population for the next decade. So um, it's, not, it's, it's not clear to me at all that things are going to work out the way uh, they felt. Well, you know, the classic example is almost everybody cites this um, uh, this apparent uh, sort of juxtaposition of Instagram, 13 programmers, taking out a giant corporation, Kodak, with 140,000 workers. And in fact, that's not what happened at all. And um, for one thing, Kodak uh, wasn't killed by Instagram. I mean, Kodak basically was a company that uh, put a gun to its head and pulled the trigger uh, multiple times until it was dead. It just made all kinds of strategic blunders. And the, the simplest evidence of that 
is its competitor, Fuji, actually did very well across this chasm of, of the internet. But the actual sort of deeper thought is that, um, uh, you know, Instagram as this sort of new age photo sharing system couldn't actually exist until the modern internet was built. And that probably created somewhere between two and a half and five million jobs, and many of them good jobs. So the notion that uh, Instagram killed both Kodak and the jobs is, is just fundamentally wrong. Uh, so um, I've started to think about, um, actually, the other thing I've started to think about is what's interesting to write about uh, beyond robotics and computing and artificial intelligence, which I've been just sort of in, uh, immersed in for the last half decade. Um, you know, I was very early to writing about um, the internet. Uh, I sort of began writing about computer networking in the 1970s, and sort of the broader world didn't catch on to it until when? Sort of 1995, 93 to 95. So what is that? This sort of 20 years of writing about um, computer networks and arguing that they would transform the way we live and work, and finally the world caught on to it. And you know, I was pretty early to understanding that robots and robotics and automation technology and, and artificial intelligence were, were going to have this renaissance. And now all of a sudden it's the white hot center. And I, I've started to look around for other things that are interesting that, that, um, that are sort of on the edge, uh, if, you, if you will. Uh, and uh, the, the thing that is, is new and interesting to me are, is material science. Um, this is uh, Neil Gershenfeld's world. Um, it's Nathan Mirvold's world now. Um, Mirvold's been one of the first people to in invest in the class of materials called metamaterials that are important and uh, are going to remake um, lots, lots of the uh, you know lots of technologies and lots of parts of the economy. Uh, so I've dabbled in metamaterials. I've dabbled in these things called metal organic frameworks. Uh, Gershenfeld at the Center for Bits and Atoms is building uh, these new kinds of digital materials that will will make uh, ordinary things uh, not static but very dynamic, and that's that's all intriguing. But you know, it's a half a decade to a decade away, and so that's that's where I've been putting my time. Um, I'm doing it against the background of of watching the New York Times go through a really fundamental transformation. Um, took a long time, but you can really see a digital culture uh, emerging inside the New York Times right now. And, um, you know, it's, it is the case that not only have we become digital, but, you know, our website is now not the place where most people read the New York Times. Most people read the New York Times uh, in, on their smartphone. And that uh, is, is driving a lot of the thinking at the Times. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm firmly part of the old guard. I mean, I was the first person to write about digital technology and digital culture at the Times, but I'm not a digital, I, I wasn't born digital in that sense. And so I, I, I've watched two cultures, um, you know, one culture going out the door at the New York Times and the other culture taking over. And I think the Times has a reasonable chance of crossing the chasm. It's not, it's not across the chasm yet, but of any of the old line media cultures, the Times is is working hard and seems to be on the edge of making it across. Um, 
so that's what I've been doing. So, you know, Stanford's an example of the transformation of the academy, I guess. You know, we talked about, once upon a time, about these things called ivory towers. And at Stanford, that ivory tower idea has gone away completely. I mean, uh, an engineer, an electrical engineer, is, is president of the uh, of the university. He's someone who is invested in and has started many companies. And um, I knew uh, I knew John Hennessy, the president of Stanford, when he was a professor and then when he was dean. And we talked, uh, you know, God, was this maybe two decades ago, maybe a decade and a half ago, about his challenges in keeping his professors who were starting to cycle in and out of the university as they started these companies. And now it's this incredibly well-oiled machine um, which is essentially serving as a sort of a, a farm team for uh, startup culture. You know, you go to Stanford to, to get your, you know, you get your button, your, your ticket punched, and then you go off and you start your, your company, or you, maybe you leave Stanford after uh, a year or two if you're an undergraduate, just long enough to find your startup. I, I don't know if they'll persist, but right now, um, the whole notion... Uh, of anywhere in society of doing long-term research is really under assault. Um, you know, the NSF bu budget and the NIH budget are relatively frozen. They're not growing. And uh, venture capitalists are increasingly making short-term bets rather than long-term bets. And so, um, you know, Google was supposed to be the latest sort of corporate entity that was going to try to to fix that, they created Google X that was supposed to do these moonshots. And so maybe there's a little bit of it, but the notion of basic research, basic, you know, doing science, uh, you don't see it very much. You see applied, applied research everywhere. Even at the national labs, you see increasingly uh, uh, projects that are, you know, intended to find ways to, con to commercialize technology. Uh, the notion of science for science sake is, is, is really under assault. This is against the background of uh, a, you know, a, 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 technology, a technological culture in America during the middle of the last century, which was based on these you know, in, industry monopolies that could afford to create giants, giant research laboratories, uh, places like IBM and Bell Labs, uh, and uh, and you know fund researchers to do things that that would you know take place over years, and that's gone away. I mean, um, in Silicon Valley, Xerox Park was started as an effort to get um, Xerox, the copier company, into the computer industry, and um, you know they 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 failed to basically make Xerox a computer company, but it had this wonderful spin-off effect. And so that is possible that some of these uh, some of these efforts may still have serendipitous consequences, but uh, nobody is willing to sort of place the long bet anymore. And that period of, of America, uh, American uh, you know, sort of uh, uh, that, that type of technological economy in America is just gone. And I don't know if it's any place else in the world either. You know, there's been a dramatic shift. Uh, in, in corporate America, and the time horizons have shortened. Um, even DARPA, which was, uh, you know, created in the 1950s to prevent America from suffering from technological surprise, uh, you know, in the wake of um, 
the Iraq uh, 9/11 and the Iraq War, DARPA sort of shifted its focus, and it's become um, focused on much shorter-term results. And uh, you know, I don't, clearly something's been lost. Uh, I think in in Silicon Valley, you know, we're in the midst of a bubble right now, and it'll be interesting to see what the culture's like after it resets. But for the moment. Uh, we're 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 really short, we're, we're focused on things that will return. You know, the, the term of art has has is now a unicorn. You know, billion dollar uh, startup in the space of just a short time. Um, and you know, there have been some. Uh, and you know, but by and large, there are, there are also lots and lots of failures. You can, so, what constitutes a bubble? And um, I guess for me, it's I can clearly see we're in a bubble economy when relatively more money is chasing relatively few good ideas, and um, it's clear that uh, you see things. Um, you know, w when the sort of the the conversation turns to Uber for X, you can tell that we're out of ideas. That people are basically just trying to iterate and and uh, and get lucky and I suppose some of them will be lucky there was lots of good timing before the collapse of the last bubble and so this will this bubble will, is and will continue to create billionaires but something will cause a reset and uh, um, the kinds of things you see now I mean you see things like the battery club for example I mean remember uh, you know there was a a period when San Francisco first created these sort of exclusive social clubs. Um, uh, there was the, the Bohemian Club and the Pacific Union Club, and they all happened at the turn of the last century, maybe even a little bit before, but a time when there was this generation of great wealth, and now along, along comes the Battery Club. And, uh, you, you know, you can see on a Friday night at the Battery Club the Uber black cars lined up around the... Around the uh, uh, around the block, you can you can see it in um, the absurd real estate valuations that are transforming San Francisco. I mean, I believe the the median cost of a one bedroom apartment is over three thousand dollars right now. The median rental cost in the city is over four thousand uh, dollars, and real estate prices have gone up. I think pretty continuously since the mid nineteen nineties, without really. They plateaued occasionally, but now it's amongst the most expensive places in the world to live. If you looked out the windows here, actually from my office over south of Market, I can see nine construction cranes. Mm -hmm. And what's being built um, are banks, basically. Um, this is this kind of wealth that emerges in the developed world now. It's happening in New York, it's happening in London, it's happening in San Francisco where uh, money that needs to flee from regions of the world that are financially insecure will come in and basically invest in a, in a condominium. Uh, and so there are these stacks of condominiums and you drive by these buildings at night and there are no lights on. I mean, they don't need to rent them through VRBO or Airbnb. They, they just leave them empty. And, uh, you know, it deforms the city. You know, the capital flows in uh, in many ways. Uh, and... Uh, I, you know, I can't tell you how many times I've said said signs of a bubble top because you see something that's ir obviously irrational. You know, the transportation situation in Silicon Valley is really quite amazing right now. Um, so you had kind of this crumbling public infrastructure, 
and now uh, the internet has made it possible to essentially skim the cream. That's what we're seeing right now. So it's not clear to me that uh, the internet enabled private transportation uh, services that are springing up ranging from Ubers and Lyfts and sidecars to these really interesting, well, uh, there are these premium bus services like Leap in San Francisco which will take you in a, a small bus with Wi-Fi and a fancy seat from the marina to downtown. Um, and then there uh, are other uh, sort of systems that are appearing around the country in places like Boston and Washington. There's a company called Bridge, which has basically a small bus-style transportation system that routes itself based on people calling in. So it's not Uber getting just you, but it's a bus that sort of changes its route based on uh, who's calling in. And it, it's kind of an efficient transportation system. But I worry that um, that basically we'll basically we'll basically have two classes of transportation. We'll have the elites who will drive in Uber Blacks, and we'll have uh, the poor who will wait longer and longer for the public buses that never come because the public system has basically become under under even more underfunded than it already was. And so that's still working itself out. There's there's another wave of um, of uh, sort of virtual networks emerging in Silicon Valley. They're really interesting, not just Silicon Valley, but it's possible now to um, stitch all the different uh, competing uh, transportation systems together just basically with your phone. And there are companies like Urban Engines and um, uh, City Mapper these that are developing apps that allow you to to essentially efficiently use multiple transportation systems. And uh, the reason why it matters is that, uh, you know, there's a, basically a prediction that 101, which is the arterial, uh, the artery that goes down the backbone of Silicon Valley, comes to a dead stop in 2020. Basically, the traffic jam is so bad that you need to park your car and just walk away. It's over. And... Uh, so the question is, will we be able to do something with a combination of these new private ride systems, the virtual networks are emerging, uh, Google cars, if they actually come into reality in time to sort of save the, the creaky transfer, transportation uh, infrastructure. I mean, BART is f basically falling apart in front of our eyes. Um, it's kind of scary because the rails get fixed while the cars are not, while the BART trains are not running across them. Uh, the rails are aging and, and it's sort of a race to the bottom. Uh, and uh, at the same time, the state is talking about building a high-speed rail system and go down to L.A., except it goes through the Central Valley for political reasons, which is kind of crazy. Um, and it's just, it's just, it's sort of, it's, it's remarkable, and remarkable and sad at the same time to see all these new technologies, and at the same time we have what amounts to, uh, you know, we're on the we're on the cusp of having a third world transportation system in the, you know, in the highest tech part of, of America, which is really richly ironic. You know, there is this perspective that people like Neil Gershenfeld, who runs the Center for Bits and Atoms at um, MIT, hold that. Um, there's a, there's a, a value to getting a sort of a first-class education, first-class technical or scientific education, because you can apply that 
uh, expertise in um, these very high-tech jobs that uh, you know that require technical management. And uh, you know, Gerstenfeld in particular has a, uh, an amazing group of students who are all doing remarkable things at a fairly high level in Silicon Valley. And he's kind of the anti-Peter Thiel in the sense that you know Thiel is arguing that uh, you know if you're bright, you should just go out and do it. And you know, uh, I think there there are a couple of examples of that. I mean, there's there's Steve Jobs and Bill Gates, right, who took off at a certain point because they have a vision. The problem for the Thiel idea is that um, the vision is not some deep understanding of the particular situation with respect to technology that both Jobs and Gates had. I mean, they went because they saw an opportunity and they had a broader vision and they were able to sort of create a new economy, both of them, um, together actually. Uh, but Thiel is basically uh, asking people to, to, to be wannabes, you know. I don't have a vision, but I want to be an entrepreneur. And the vision will come second. I think the vision maybe has to come first. And uh, I mean, I haven't followed Teal closely, but I haven't seen any fundamental world-changing ideas in the way that Gates or Jobs changed the world in, in terms of creating new industries come out of any of that yet. So the argument that some people make is that you need, it's two sides of a coin. I mean, Silicon Valley isn't just hacker culture. That was represented by Wozniak. But it's that particular combination of an entrepreneur, Steve Jobs, and a technical guy, Steve Wozniak, who just wanted to build uh, a personal computer so he could show it off to his friends at the Homebrew Computer Club. It was Jobs who said, hey, you know, there's a market for this. And it's when you put that, that, I mean, you know, rarely do you see that combination in one person. You frequently see it in two people, a guy who's passionate technically and a guy who has the business sense to realize there's a market and they come to, together. Um, in, in an earlier era, you had a Hewlett and a Packard where there were two technical guys who became business guys. But more frequently now in Silicon Valley, you see this interesting combination of a, you know, a passionate technical person or small group of people and someone who has business expertise and that's what makes a successful company. I don't know enough about Uber to know whether there, whether there's actual magic technology. I mean, um, there was technological insight into that idea. I mean, the notion of um, this sharing economy was pioneered uh, by, by an earlier group of people before um, the, before the uh, the Uber folks came along. I mean, the ideas were there, and they they jumped on them, and they became the dominant force for for whatever reason. I mean, what worries me about the future of Silicon Valley mm -hmm. is that that one dimensional one dimensionality that it's not a Renaissance culture. It's an engineering culture. It's a it's an engineering culture that believes that it's revolutionary, but it's actually not that revolutionary. The Valley has for a long, long time mined a couple of big ideas. Um, there was Engelbart. You know, Engelbart uh, uh, basically set in motion the ideas that became personal computing. And then a decade later, there was Mark Weiser, sort of a second generation. I mean, Alan Kay uh, sort of riffed on Engelbart's ideas 
and he created the idea of the Dynabook, which became the modern personal computer, but he started with Engelbart. And then came Mark Weiser, and Mark Weiser had this profound idea that computing would disappear into everyday objects, and everyday objects would become magic. And that was the second big idea. And the first guy to really understand that and take advantage of it was Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs first turned the record player into an iPod, and then he turned the, the telephone into a computer. Those were two really big ideas. And One of the things I've wondered about for the last, you know, almost decade now is at what point does the first sort of new platform happen first outside of Silicon Valley? I mean, the last sort of major platform in the world that sort of defined the future of computing was the smartphone. And in the year, so that was 2007, in the year before the smartphone, I thought innovation was actually moving to Europe. All of the interesting mobile applications were actually happening first at that time in Europe and not in the U.S. And then the iPhone happened and it all came back to Silicon Valley. But at some point, another major platform uh, is going to come first outside of Silicon Valley. And I thought that the Internet actually made that more possible. It made it, you know, Friedman talks about the world being flat, and the internet did actually flatten the world, and so why shouldn't a, a sort of global computing platform that's the future come first outside of Silicon Valley? I think that's entirely a possibility, except, um, so what is that going to be? What comes after the smartphone? Skype? Skype? No. No, no. I, my bet now is it's augmented reality or some form of augmented reality. There, there, there are a number of small and large companies who are basically argue, arguing or trying to develop this technology that causes you know, the mouse to disappear, the keyboard to disappear, the smartphone to disappear. You will interact with the computing resources that are all around you in the cloud and wherever else by just speaking and, and looking through your glasses. And you know, I thought that was entirely science fiction. Uh, and more recently, I've seen both HoloLens from Microsoft. And, you know, it's, uh, HoloLens was neat, but I think it was also kind of disappointing because it's pretty clear that Microsoft is still locked in the PC paradigm. They're still trying to reinvent and save the personal computer. But I saw the same technology um, sort of riffed on by a, a startup called Magic Leap that Google and, and, and and you know, Qualcomm and, and uh, Kleiner Perkins have put a half a billion dollars in and they're trying to raise even more. Uh, and the Magic Leap technology was the first point that I thought there might be something that would be a, a new computing platform that would be post-computer displays and keyboards and mice and the smartphone. And the notion that if you want a high-resolution screen, you could simply go like this, and the screen would hang in the air, mm -hmm. and you would be able to enter text by speaking on it. I thought that was science fiction, and now I don't believe that it's science fiction. I think it's real. Uh, it might not show up in the next five years. It might be a decade away, like the mouse was once. But I think that's my best bet for the next wave of computing. And so then the question becomes, does it come from Silicon Valley, or does it come from someplace else in the world? And um, but these, you know, these new platforms—they're they're increments, and they only come along every half decade or decade. And right now, we're, you know, the smartphone happened in 2007. 
It's created this huge ecosystem. The entire population of the world walks around looking like this. <laughs> we should have stuck with pagers. It's not, I mean, this can't be the end of, of human evolution, right? We have to go someplace else. I mean, it's really, it's really quite remarkable. It's moved people off of personal computers. Microsoft's business, while it's a huge monopoly, has stopped growing. So there was this platform change. And I'm fascinated to see what the next platform is going to be, and I think it's totally up in the air. And I, I actually think the, that some form of augmented reality is possible and real. And, uh, uh, you know, is it going to be a science fiction utopia or a science fiction nightmare? I think it's going to be a little bit of both. So in, in, in 2004, I remember, maybe 2005, I remember seeing Sergey and Larry, and they both had these little sidekicks on their, on their belts. And that was really the modern future. They just graduated from the pager world. And, uh, you know, 2007 comes along, we have the iPhone, then comes Android, because they've taken the inventor of the sidekick and they... Andy Rubin, and he went to work for them, and he built the Android business. And, you know, ironically, you know, Android was supposed to be a defensive move against Microsoft, and it just got a little out of hand. It ate the world. It was too good of an idea. Mm -hmm. And uh, what I, I spend a lot of time thinking about is what's next? What comes after smartphones? Because smartphones can't be the end of, the, the, the end of computing. Uh, and my, my own bet is it will be some flavor of augmented reality and, you know, somebody will come out of left field and surprise us and do something really interesting. And the question is, is it going to be in five years or is it going to be in 10 years or 15 years? Right. Computing is uh, ubiquitous computing or the Internet of Things. It's all supposed to disappear, right? And so the problem is, is it going to disappear into us? And what could it's possibly not, go wrong? You know, there is this argument that... Um, that these machines are going to replace us. But I only think that that's relevant to you or me, in the, in the sense, well, you know, does it matter if it doesn't happen in our lifetime? And, you know, there is this Kurzweil crowd that argues this is happening faster, faster, and that things are just running amok. And in fact, things are slowing down. And uh, so I think that in 2045, it's going to look more like it's going to look today, today than it looks today than you think.